Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. Thank you so much for being here. We've got a special episode for you today. It's a podcast version of a story I first published back in August called Encyclopedia Carlson and the Bath School Disaster. It's about the summer that I had to move to a new place and the horrible history I learned when I moved there and when I first got there. Let's get into it. Everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It is really wonderful to have you here. On today's episode, we've got a new podcast version of a story I first published last summer. This is a very personal one that is both about uh, something that happened to me and something from history that I think is undertold, undercovered, and underknown, and I think largely forgotten. And that's a, a scary thing. And I didn't know anything about it until I moved to the place where it happened. So let me tell you about it. Um, back in August of 2023, I published an essay here at What Am I Making about moving to the small town of Bath, Michigan in the summer of 1984. I was 12 years old. I did not want to move to a new place. I was sullen, and I was furious. In an effort to help me with the transition, my dad pulled out an old history magazine and told me about a bombing known as the Bath School Disaster that took place in the town we were moving to. This is a story of the roots of American domestic terror, the ways we forget our own history, and how hard it is for us to talk about the skeletons in our own closets. What follows is a podcast version of the story that I wrote back in August, complete with new original music by me, Matty C. These musical sequences are from a new series of compositions that I've been working on, and that I hope will in the future become a full ambient record inspired by the Bath School disaster. In the meantime, I hope that you enjoy this podcast version of our story. Cheers, Maddie C. Encyclopedia Carlson and the Bath School Disaster. In May of 1984, my parents told me we were moving. I was crushed. They went on to explain that we'd be moving more than two hours to the west of our current home, to the rural farming community of Bath, Michigan. I'd heard rumblings or something about the possible move in the wind, but I was 12 years old and finishing a very important stretch in the sixth grade. This was not a great time for me. So... I paid very little attention to the hubbub and the rumors and went about my day-to-day. When the hard reality began to settle in and plans became locked into place, I got angry. They had not thought about my life and what I needed. I had a budding career as a little league second baseman. The bigger kids in the neighborhood had finally stopped taunting and beating the shit out of me. There were a couple of girls that someone close to a source who knew someone had heard someone say that I was kind of cute. Kind of cute! 
I couldn't be walking away from opportunities like that. My dad tried to win me over by pushing all of the new stuff that we would be able to do in the area around our new home. It was just outside of East Lansing. We could go to Michigan State University basketball and football games, museums, restaurants, movies, arcades, and more. This might sound like a ludicrous sales tactic, but I need to provide a little context here. The town we lived in, Sandusky, Michigan, was in the Thumb region of Michigan. It is a flat, barren stretch of land populated by sugar beets, German immigrants, and somewhat notably, the home of Terry Nichols, one of the guys who blew up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. One movie theater, the best restaurants in town were either the bar on Main Street or the bar at the bowling alley. We had no family for more than a hundred miles. The prospects in the area were minimal, even in the up-and-coming early 1980s. We had only been there for my dad's work. None of that mattered to me. My dad pushed harder. He told me about the Capitol building and the car museum downtown. I was a nerd and he knew it. He kept needling. And finally, one day, he struck gold. Stephen Carlson had a monthly subscription to a Michigan history magazine. As he worked to find ways to get me excited about our upcoming move, he remembered a recent article he'd read on the Bath School disaster. I quickly began to learn it was a gruesome and largely unknown tale of violence, revenge, and how it haunted the little town that we would soon call home. It was 1984, years before Columbine, Oklahoma City, Sandy Hook, Las Vegas, and sadly hundreds more. The story I would learn was decades older than that. The subsequent trauma and horror still held a veil over this small Midwestern excerpt that still exists today. When I first heard the story of the Bath school disaster, it was a different world, and Bath, Michigan was a very different place. The Bath Consolidated School was rocked by a massive explosion in its north wing at about 8.45 in the morning on May 18, 1927. When the first charge of dynamite exploded, the outer walls of the building's northern section caved almost instantly. There were an estimated 230 children inside the building. In the surrounding chaos of the morning, the farm of a former school board trustee went up in flames. The northern wing had collapsed almost totally. The smoke, dust, and debris made it difficult to breathe. Dozens of young children lay dead or severely wounded. It was the deadliest act of terrorism in American history until the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. 
nearly 70 years after the Bath School disaster. Even today, it is considered the sixth deadliest act of terror in the history of our country and remains the deadliest attack on a school in American history. settled into our new home and our new community, I learned more about the disaster. Rather funny that we still refer to it as a disaster and not an attack or a bombing or straight-up domestic terrorism. Disaster makes it sound like an idea that just went off the rails. The truth is the carnage should have been far worse. The perpetrator at the center of the bombing was a local farmer named Andrew Kehoe. In 1924, Kehoe was elected school board treasurer and sought immediately and forcefully to reduce property taxes being paid by local landowners to help fund the school. Kehoe regularly clashed with Superintendent Emery Huck about finances and their disparate visions for the school district. As their relationship further dissolved, Kehoe accused Huck of financial mismanagement, though no formal, formal charges were ever filed, and Kehoe provided no subsequent documentation to support these claims. After holding the Bath Township clerk position through most of 1925 on a temporary basis for which he had been appointed, Kehoe was unsuccessful in his re-election bid in 1926 for a permanent post as clerk. Kehoe and his wife Nellie had first moved to the area in 1912 when they bought a 185-acre farm and a three-story home just off of Clark Road in Bath Township. The house had belonged to Nellie's aunt, and the Kehoes bought the property from the family after her death. Known for being tight-fisted in Tecumseh as well, Kehoe had spent years as a member of the local Catholic church. After some extensive re renovations were completed, the Kehoes received a bill for $400 for their share of the costs. Despite having agreed to pay for this portion of the renovations, Kehoe still refused to pay the invoice and then ceased his activities within the church. Upon arriving at their new home, the Kehoes sought to become members at the Bath Parish. Andrew Kehoe again rebuffed the priest when he felt the fees for membership were too high. Once again, the Kehoes chose to worship at home out of frugality. natural-born tinkerer and engineer educated at Michigan Agricultural College in East Lansing, now Michigan State University, Keogh was ill-suited for farming. His neighbors reported that he spent more time on unusual techniques in an effort to improve efficiency, so much so that his crops often wilted in the field. Monty Ellsworth, a neighbor, summed up the struggles on the Keogh farm by saying, quote, he never farmed it as other farmers do, and he tried to do everything with his tractor. He was in the height of his glory when fixing machinery or tinkering. He was always trying new methods in his work. For instance, hitching two mowers behind his tractor. 
This method did not work at different times, and he would just leave the hay standing, unquote. As Kehoe suffered through the loss of his 1926 campaign and his failing farm, Nellie became ill with tuberculosis. A childless couple with few friends and no nearby family, Andrew was left to largely abandon his work on the farm to attend to his wife and her recovery. While he tried to nurse his wife back to health, Kehoe had ceased making his mortgage and insurance payments. The bank that held the mortgage on his farm had already begun foreclosure proceedings by the spring of 1927. Rage had been simmering within Andrew Kehoe for years. Many neighbors had reported that he had had, quote, an ungovernable temper and was prone to violent outbursts. Some neighbors even remarked that he abused his animals on the farm. Now, Andrew Kehoe felt victimized by his political failures and by his inability to steer the school district in the, in the direction that he had envisioned. He was losing his wife as well as his farm. He was seething. There is no way to know for certain how long the explosives that led to the bombing were buried under the building, but Kehoe had full access of the school through nearly all of 1926. After the bombing, police were able to see that Kehoe had purchased two boxes of dynamite at a sporting goods store in November of 1926, a full six months before the bombing took place. Dynamite was a common tool for farmers in the area. It was an effective way to remove tree stumps, break up compacted dirt, eliminate rodents, and more. It is likely that Kehoe made a number of small purchases, like the November sale that the police recovered. School board member M.W. Keyes was quite sure that Kehoe had planted the dynamite while performing electrical repairs at the school in November of 1926. Keyes even told the New York Times, quote, I have no doubt that he made his plans last fall to blow up the school. He was an experienced electrician, and the board employed him in November to make some repairs on the lighting system within the school. He had ample opportunity then to plant the explosives and lay the wires for touching it off. In the aftermath of the disaster, police investigators also noted a nearby bridge construction site, which had seen a theft of all its dynamite. It is presumed this dynamite was stolen by Kehoe and subsequently used in the bombing. This was a methodically planned and prolonged endeavor for Andrew Kehoe, to say the least. After a stay to treat her TB symptoms at St. Lawrence Hospital in nearby Lansing, Michigan, Nellie Kehoe returned to her home on the morning of May 16, 1927. Sometime over the next 48 hours, her husband Andrew would end her life with a rifle shot to the head. At around 8.45 on the morning of May 18, 1927, there was a large explosion at the home of Andrew and Nellie Kehoe. This was followed by a second, smaller explosion, 
and then the property and building became a lit with flame. Nearby farmers and neighbors ran to the windows to see what the massive noise was and saw the blaze. Rescuers in town began racing toward the Kehoe farm to help. As they hurried toward the fire, a much larger explosion concussed from behind them. Something truly awful had happened. They turned their trucks around and headed back. As his house and farm burned away in the spring sunshine, Andrew Kehoe tore down his driveway toward Clark Road and then into town. While Kehoe propelled his Ford truck toward the school, he was just seconds behind the rescuers who in turn had just been on their way to his farm. First, the rescue crews arrived at the school, and then Kehoe. spotted his nemesis, Emery Hook, in the street, surveying the carnage. Pulling his truck up next to the superintendent, Kehoe waved Huck over to the vehicle, and the two began yelling at each other and started to struggle. It was at this point that Andrew Kehoe fired a shotgun blast into the back of his Ford pickup, which he had then loaded with hardware, dynamite, kerosene, and an an explosive proton powder and gunpowder mixture. The massive explosion and shrapnel of the truck bomb killed both Kehoe and Huck instantly. It also cruelly took the life of a second grader who had just survived the initial blast and was walking dazedly down the street as Kehoe fired his gun into the truck. Back at the farm, additional rescue crews worked to put out the fire and searched for explanations. Kehoe had locked his barn with his horses inside of it and had bound their feet so there was no way for them to escape. The crew had also discovered the charred remains of Nellie Kehoe, unsure how long she had been dead before the fire began. Andrew Kehoe left behind no manifesto, no screed, or treatise. There is no note of explanation or anything that gives us a window into his mind at the moment of madness. Chillingly, though, Kehoe left behind a phrase that he had hand-painted on a sign that seemed to say it all. Criminals are made not born. Andrew Kehoe's act of terror took the lives of 45 people, including his own, his wife's, and 38 young children between the ages of 7 and 12. Recovery and rescue teams found nearly 500 pounds of additional dynamite under the building that were, for some reason, never detonated. It is likely that the initial blast jarred the mechanism for the second charge, and ended up saving the lives of scores more children and teachers. It could and should have been so much worse. The American Red Cross arrived the day of the explosion. Thousands of cars drove in from Lansing and the surrounding communities to gawk at the carnage. Fire and rescue crews from across the region were brought in to help with the cleanup. The Bath School disaster was the front page story all across the world for three days. 
Then early on the morning of May 21st, 1927, Charles Lindbergh landed in Paris, completing the first transatlantic flight, and booted the Bath disaster out of the headlines for good. And now here I was, 12 years old, and I lived in the place where this had happened. It was a story to tell people when they asked where we'd moved to. What seemed weird was that in Bath, everyone knew about it, but no one talked about it. By the time I ended high school in 1990, the school had built a new auditorium and had put together a small museum about the bombing. There is a statue of a girl and a cat that had been built by Michigan sculptor Carlton Angel, in 1928, the year after the bombing. The statue was crafted from pennies that had been donated by schoolchildren around the country and then melted down. I moved out of Bath before Oklahoma City and Columbine happened. When I was living there and going to school, it was a place where an awful, out-of-the-ordinary thing had occurred. It was tragic and it was real, but it was isolated. Now that bombing has taken on a new meaning to me and all who have lived there or are attached to it in some way. The Bath School disaster now feels like ground zero of our scourge of school violence in this country. Almost a hundred years on, the grievances of Andrew Kehoe look and sound very much like the same grievances of some of my current neighbors. Much of the violent rhetoric and temper is there as well. I can spot the rage, the simmering resentment, and the anger. For so long... No one wanted to tell the story of the place where I grew up. No one wanted to talk about what happened there nearly a century ago. As recently as 2016, even Time magazine was asking why we had forgotten what happened in Bath. Today, we should feel ashamed for not telling the story better and more often and from learning from it ourselves. Cheers. Maddie C.